0: The scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. I'll give you a moment to find that in your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 6, at verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. "...steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession." To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it's my privilege this morning, I get to introduce to you one more mentor that we've been uh, going through in our First Timothy Building a Healthy Church series. We've been inviting uh, three of my different mentors and men who have poured into my life, much like Paul did with a a young Timothy who was pastoring the churches, overseeing them in in Ephesus, Ephesus. Today, I uh, have a real honor and a privilege to uh, introduce to you one of my best friends, actually, I would say, uh, but more than that, a mentor, too, in my life. Uh, Dale Barrett will be coming up in a moment. Dale pastored for over 40-some years uh, at multiple churches in California, Texas as well, am I right, uh, and it now uh, is a biblical counselor. Uh, and he attends Grace San Luis, uh, where I pastored before, and where Pastor Tim Thule, who uh, preached a couple weeks ago, is the lead pastor. He's here with his wife uh, Bev Barrett, who is actually Pastor Tim's mom. So there's some connections there uh, today for us. But um, Dale and Bev have been absolutely uh, integral in our life these last 10 years. Surrogate grandparents to our kids, uh, mentors to both my uh, myself and my wife Robin and just a great and dear friend i am thrilled to have them here today Uh, a man of god who loves the lord loves the local church and is constantly pouring into other people's lives like paul did with timothy so let's welcome pastor dale today as he comes to preach the word for us
2: well good morning I love it when somebody reads what I write as an introduction so correctly. (laughs) Uh, I guess the word I would use to start with is, wow. Some of you don't know that I was here, maybe back um, probably about seven or eight years ago when uh, Pastor Jeff first arrived. And um, things look a lot different than they did when I came at that time. And I want to just compliment you for the beauty of the facility that you have and how nicely decorated it is and how wonderful it is to see you occupying it today and being a part of this wonderful opportunity that we have to celebrate uh, the Lord's Day. Uh, I'm reminded uh, of the first time uh, that we actually got to meet Jeff. And uh, it's kind of, a, I've told a few of the story who we've met, but we actually We're excited about moving from Northern California. I had been pastoring for 46 years. We were going to retire. Uh, Tim said we were going to retread, which I guess is a more apropos word. Uh, And we were so excited about hearing our son Tim preach every Sunday. I thought, isn't this going to be wonderful that we're going to come back into a church where we don't really have to do much, but sit and listen and we can listen to our our son Tim. Well, When we arrived, we discovered that he was on sabbatical, and (laughs) so naturally we were a little bit disappointed and uh, wondered what uh, would be in his place, but for that whole summer we listened to Pastor Jeff and I can't tell you what a blessing that was to us. I know how much you're appreciating his ministry uh, from week to week, but during that period of time, we became good friends and fellowship together in growth group, and uh, I'm just glad that uh, Jeff picks people his own age to be his friends because that's made it a very, very uh, special relationship for us. It's really wonderful to be able to uh, read the Word of God. I always think that when I'm reading the Word of God is if I have an audience with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who describes Himself as the Word. And so there's wonderful phenomena when I'm reading the Word to know that I'm actually hearing the words of God Himself and that He is revealing Himself to me through His Word. And how incredible to receive a letter like Paul wrote to Timothy. Can you imagine receiving that letter yourself, opening it up and beginning to read all the words of encouragement and the words of instruction and to be so challenged as he was, and I'm sure as he read those words and it was circulated in that first century. The the, the theme of this book is about how the church is to live together. How do we incorporate the principles of God's Word into our lives in how we behave, how we act, and how we live out the tenets of our faith, to which Paul says to Timothy, we cannot compromise those, dilute those, wander from those, we must hold steady to the truths of God's word. But the church is really defined by its own definition as the ones who are called out So if we were only going to do that within the local body, apply these principles, it would be good for us, but we would miss the whole content of what God intends for His church to do. Uh, The word actually means the called out ones, the ones who are called out to be God's people in a a needy world. Um, We live in probably, you know, I, I know every generation says it, but in the... 73 plus years that I have lived, uh, this feels like the most godly, godless time that we have lived. Do you feel that way sometimes? Uh, Romans 1, which says at the very conclusion that in the end, God will give people over to a reprobate mind, and what was evil will be treated as good, and what was good will be treated as evil. That's happening in our generation in living color, isn't it? And it's frightening. Uh, And it's alarming, but it is what God's Word says will come uh, in the end days. And so the challenge, I think, in the midst of all of this is how then do we live godly lives in a godless world? Could I suggest that that can even be hard at church sometimes, isn't it? Just sometimes because we have different ideas and different concepts and maybe different ways that we do things but translating that into the world is a challenge to be sure. Why is it important that it be translated into the world? I think there are two passages of scripture that I come to mind. This is not in your notes, this is just kind of extra. I was thinking about it this morning. One is in the book of 2 Thessalonians when Paul says to the church there, having reviewed his time of ministry, he says this. He says, you know, I've been with you for a while. And during the time that I've been here, I have tried to live a holy life. And I want to live my life so that it's been beyond reproach. I haven't wanted to be a burden to you. For this purpose, we have in the New Testament what are called purpose clauses. So that when you hear the word of God, you will receive it not just as if men were speaking, but as if God himself were speaking through us. So what he's really saying is that the Word of God will not just be something that we say, but something that we live out, and when those two are wed together, there is an uncanny supernatural power of that that allows the Word of God to be communicated effectively. There's another passage of Scripture that you may not have thought about in that way, and it's found in the book of Luke chapter 6. It's the parable of the wise man and the foolish man. Do you know that story? And I, I, would, I, I don't have time, but I would have you answer the question, what was the difference between the wise and the foolish man? I think the very clear response would seem to be that the wise man built himself, his house upon a solid foundation, and the foolish man built his house upon a sandy foundation so that when the inclement storms of life came... The house upon the rock stood fast, and the house upon the sand was shattered. But Jesus says that was not the primary difference. Here's what he says. The man who hears the word of God and does it is the wise man. The man who hears the word of God and does not do it is the foolish man. So once again, God is not in his economy of talking about the efficacy of the gospel, only concerned about the fact that we hear the truth of his word, but that we then live it out in our lives, because that's what brings to it the vitality of human experience and testimony that people honor. Someone has said that our lives are sometimes the only Bible that anybody reads. And so we have this challenge, I think, of how then can we live a godly life? How do we exercise godliness in a godless world? And I want to think about that with you. But before we do that, I'd like to pray that God will help us see that clearly and that it will become for us a personal challenge. I've been studying these verses for a while and I can't tell you how much they have impregnated my own heart and stimulated me to think about how can my life be the most apt reflection of Christ in a world so desperately needing to see that. Will you join me in prayer as we ask God for us? Thank you, Lord Jesus, we do pray for that today. We acknowledge that we are sinners in need of a savior. We acknowledge the bountiful provision of God's grace, not only to save us from our sins, but grace that enables and keeps and sustains us each and every day of our lives as we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the the fact that this is promised not only for this life, this is not only what helps us as we live from one day to the next in this world, but it is promise for eternity the promise that we anticipate as believers that will be the consummate reward for our faithfulness to you and your grace and mercy extended to us. To that end, we pray that we will hear this word this morning and hide it in our heart that we might walk in obedience before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I wanna talk then about godliness because this letter is a guide to how the church should work, not only within itself, but a call to Christ-centered godliness for the sake of the church and a lost world too. That word godliness appears 10 times in this book. Maybe you were told that at the outset of this message, be uh, this study of this book that you've been having together. But there's several ways that it's represented or characterized, and I wanna talk about that just in a a beginning way. Because it talks, first of all, about the mystery of godliness. And so if you're following along this morning, uh, we won't have time to look at all these verses, but clear back in chapter three, when Paul is talking about uh, the, the focus of the church and its ministry in holding up and buttressing the truth of the gospel, He suggests that there is the mystery of gospel. And then he explains in those verses, and you remember them in verses 14 through 16, something about the incarnation and the ministry of Jesus Christ and his saving work, which really lies at the very heart of understanding what godliness is. It's the mystery of godliness. I think the mystery of godliness is how do we, as sinful men and women, indwelt by the Holy Spirit live godly lives. There's a mystery to that, isn't it? And it flows from understanding the incarnate work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death and resurrection, his sending the Holy Spirit to live within us, to empower us. That really is sort of the mystery that we could even think about godliness in our Christian lives. He also talks about the measure of godliness back in chapter two, verse 10, chapter uh, five, verse six. He talks about the fact that uh, when we measure godliness, it really is reflected in how we live. You remember the section where he talks about women? And he says in chapter 2 that even in the way that they behave and the way they dress, they reflect godliness. He talks especially to widows and the treatment of the church of widows and suggests that how we do that is a manifestation of godly living and godliness. He talks about the motivation for godliness. This is just kind of an overview about how he uses this incredible word. And he talks about the fact that godliness next to contentment is gain. So what he's really saying is that there is something about uh, having a right relationship with God where we are walking according with his purpose and plan for our lives that is aligned closely with a sense of contentment. I don't know about you, but contentment is one of those things that seems very evasive to me. So the idea of linking that together with godly living, Christ-centered living seems to me to make sense. He also says that that we are training for godliness, that there's a sense of our lives that we are growing. It's not something like uh, we automatically achieve in a moment of time or by osmosis simply because we've accepted Christ In our lives, but there is a training for godliness, a growth in that process. He also suggests that there can be a misrepresentation of godliness, that there can be a a false kind of godlessness, that of godliness, a godless myth, the false gospel. People were even using it as a means of gain. I don't know how many times you've turned on a television preacher who has suggested that if you just, you know, give the right amount of money, that somehow that will enhance your relationship with God and provide for you blessing. As if there were, by pursuing godliness, the motivation of this would be for personal gain or personal uh, aggrandizement. And then he finally talks about the misuse of godliness. And back, if you were to move forward into 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he talks about all kinds of sin. And at the very end, having said, men become lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, he talks about having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. So the idea is going maybe through all the motions you know, doing all the externally acceptable things, but being spiritually bankrupt on the inside. And so that because of that, maybe the lack of a genuine relationship with God, just going through the motions, but really your life being a sort of an unsavory testimony to the gutlessness of what it really means to walk with God, somehow devaluing that by having a form of godliness, but having no power on display. So what, then, is true godliness? I've been thinking about that, and so I want to kind of give you a definition that I've made up. This is not in the Word of God. It's not. This is godliness according to Barrett. So can I say that with you with that caveat? And so I always want to distinguish between what God's Word says and what I want to suggest. But I'm going to suggest to you that godliness is grace-enabled grace enabled gospel living. Can I say that to you again? Godliness is grace-enabled gospel living. I think I actually would like to have you say that out loud with me. Can you do that with me together? Is it on your screen so you can see it? All right, let's say it together. Godliness is grace Does that sound good to you? But well, maybe it's your mask that make you sound very unenthusiastic about that. Um, so let's try it again. You do it again with me? Godliness is grace-enabled gospel living. That, to me, is an incredible idea just because at the outset, the first moniker of definition says we can't do it on our own. It really suggests that there is a, a peace outside of us. That has to make that a possibility because if I said to you this morning, I just have this feeling if I said to you, Are you a godly person? I don't think that all of you would stand and raise your hands and say, Oh, yes. I think we want to be that. We feel maybe that we fall short of that. I think there's another word in the New Testament that we kind of chafe at as well. We're called saints. I mean, how many of you say, I'm a saint? you know, but that's how God describes us, those who have been set apart unto Him for His honor and for His service. So this idea of godliness is really anchored and built in the idea of the role of the Holy Spirit enabling us to do what we cannot do for ourselves, right? And gospel living is simply living out salvation, sanctification, all that is part and parcel of God's job description, God's call upon our lives as believers. And the best word about that is this, faithful is he that calleth you. you know the rest of it? He will do it. So if we're called to godliness, it's not like we muscle up and we grit our teeth, but somehow there is this realization that This is a cooperative venture that I cannot do this on my own. I cannot do this in my own strength. It's only as I align myself with the resources that are available to me through Christ himself. So I want to encourage you with that as we start. And then to suggest to you that um, Paul, as he writes, Timothy is going to give him, I think, some very good advice that's going to help him. And he's going to do that if you look at the beginning of our passage by saying to him, Timothy, man of God. Now, just looking at that word may seem to you uh, innocuous. It may not seem like that big a deal. You might say, well, I've seen that word a hundred times. No, you haven't. You haven't seen that but two times in the New Testament. And both times you see it in the New Testament, it's in the book of Timothy, it's used in the Old Testament often of prophets and those who are spiritual men, but when we get to the New Testament, that term only appears in this passage of Scripture. And I want to make sure you understand that this verse is not just intended, or this commands are not just intended for Timothy as a man of God. But if you were to wander over into 2 Timothy chapter 3, And if you read about Scripture, and that all Scripture is given to man and is profitable for our training and our growth and our correction, you will notice this. So that, remember that purpose clause? So the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see that? So what the Word of God is saying is that Yes, Timothy, you're a man of God, but I think by inference in this passage of Scripture that the the path and the road to godliness is for all of us because all of us have access to the Word of God. And when we read the Word of God and we implement through the grace of God His Word in our lives, this becomes a part of our training and our equipping and our enablement to experience completeness and fullness of our life. And here's the best part, to be equipped for every good work. Now, every good work is every spirit-enabled work because good works that matter in God's sight are not the things that we try to do ourselves. Our righteousness is filthy rags. Our good works falls by the wayside. But anything that is motivated by the Holy Spirit in us that charges us or compels us or gives a compunction for us to live our lives in service of God, that qualifies as a good work. And that's enabled and accomplished in our lives as men and women of God, did you hear that? Men and women of God, because we have taken in the word and we have applied it and lived it out in our lives. And that I would say, is what a godless age needs to see from a people who are committed to godliness. So how are we gonna do that, Timothy? How are we gonna do that, Dale? How are we gonna do that, Jeff, Robin, rest of us who are here today? And I think there are these four things that are important for us today as we look at this passage of Scripture. The first thing is that we are to flee the temptations of worldliness and materialism. Now, you've studied this book already, and so you know a little bit. I think Pastor, was it you, uh, Pastor Jeff, who preached on riches? So I'm not gonna try to improve upon what he's already said, but because there's a reference to this in the very first verse that we read this morning, we have to at least contextually look back to it. Flee. Now, I don't know what you think about flee, but Flee does not mean quietly retreat. It doesn't mean take you know sort of quiet steps you know easily behind. That is not what is resident or reflected in the use of the word flee. In fact, uh, Paul will write the church at Corinth and say, "Flee evil passions." He says later in Second Timothy, "Flee youthful lust." So he's talking about a very abrupt decision to move away from. There is a sense of urgency in the word of flee, and I think it's important because it's so easy for us, and, and if you'll pardon me using this word, to kind of dance with the devil. It's so for easy for us to try to live the best of both worlds, say, I can, I can do just this much, or hang on to this little piece, And allow ourselves to be caught in the web of temptation. And James chapter 1 gives a wonderful treatise about how that process takes root in our lives and we're drawn away by our evil desires. And ultimately it results in brazen sin against God when we yield to temptation. Flee. Flee from the temptations of worldliness. Flee from those things that will pull you away from the pursuit of godliness. And there are three things that he suggested, and I think they're in your outline for you today. The first is from doctrinal error, promoted by those who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Doctrinal error. Never have we lived in a day and age where there is so much that is passed off as gospel, so much that is passed off as the power of positive thinking, self, uh, self-love, self-pursuit, self-care, all of these things sort of are masquerading as substitutes for the genuine call and claims of the gospel. And it's easy It's easy to get sucked in by those things. It's interesting to me that many of them contain elements of truth. It's my my kind of conviction that truth uh, that we watch out for is truth that's either distorted or diluted. Let me tell you what I think the difference is. Diluted truth is truth where something less than the full gospel is presented, when something's subtracted from the truth of what God's Word intends. The distortion of truth is when it gets an emphasis greater than it deserves. So we can do that by subtracting from what the Word of God says or by adding to it. And it's interesting that the Bible says that he who adds or subtracts anything to the written Word of God is in danger of God's most fierce judgment. So this idea of fleeing the temptations of worldliness and materialism and somehow being seduced by doctrinal error is really something that we have to be alert to. And I would just add to that, Paul, when he writes in Ephesians chapter 4, says, We cannot be like little children who are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But he says that because of the church and its function, which he outlines as teachers and those in authority over us, that they are able to work in such a way so that we discover and build our lives on a foundation of truth that is unassailable in the light of the winds of of bad and doctrine untrue to God's Word. Doctrinal error can be a way that we are led into temptation, as well as discontentment with what we have. Um, The Bible says we should be content that we have enough to eat, uh, and we have clothes on our back, and that God provides a roof over our head, and uh, are you content with that? You think? How about a bigger house? How about better food, right? How about more money in the bank? Bev and I have just kind of been through a season of, I can be, uh, I'm trying to watch my time to make sure I, I'm careful here. Bev and I have been kind of through a season where we discovered that we had some money that we didn't know we, we had. Isn't that, isn't that make for a great day? Um, that, doesn't, that hasn't happened before, but, uh, and it happened, and, and it was significant. It was just, and here's, here's the deal for me. I've always kind of lived thinking, oh, if I just, if we just had a little bit more, you know? then I wouldn't have to worry about maybe still working and maybe I wouldn't worry about, you know, if something happens to us and we don't want the children to have to come take care of us. and Oh, I just just know I'd be so much more happy if I had just a little more money. We've had that money now for four or five months and it's actually created more problems than it's resolved problems. (laughs) That's something? And the, and the, the teaching to me in all of that is this is not really how God intends to fill the cavernous needs in our life that only He intends to fill. And the deception of the enemy is to get us thinking, you know, in the way of the world to to somehow get ourselves lured into that sense of false security where we can, you know, check the stock market and, and measure our savings account and, and get an appraisal of our house to see just how much value and worth that we have. Desire for riches and worldly things to fill the void that only God can have can fill uh, is, is I think a temptation uh, in our lives. I, I can remember just as a young man um, reading Life Magazine. Does anybody here remember Life Magazine? <laughs> a couple of us are old enough to remember that. And I can remember a huge spread on J. Paul Getty. I don't know if you know who Jay Paul Getty is, but he you know, was one of the richest men in the world and uh, he is he is he's in a house of opulence just and he's seated in one particular picture that's across a two-fold uh, page and it's it's a, this i can't even explain the extravagance and the opulence and uh, the, the the beauty of the room it's 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 been it has just all this wonderful tapestries hanging in the wall and beautiful wood wood carvings and a a table that probably costs more than your church would sell on the market for. And um, there are 24 chairs, I counted them on the table, around the table, and he's sitting in one end by himself. And I think it's maybe uh, one of his many cooks who is bringing his meal to him and underneath the caption is, I am the loneliest man in the world. I've thought about that so many times. How easy it is for us to be deceived or tempted by the things of the world that, that can seem, you know, innocuous to us, but reach out and before we know it, we're snatched in the magnet of their hold and we find ourselves making decisions that we read later that can create for us great, great sorrow and sadness. Run from that. Don't dance with it. Run, flee. With a sense of urgency because the enemy is looking to catch you in your pursuit of godliness in a way that will take you off course. Not only are we to flee those things but we're to follow after godliness and the fruit of the Spirit. Now follow after it seems not to be as strong as the word pursue So let me just say, first of you, in the Greek, pursue and uh, flee have the same degree of urgency in the words that appear there. So with the same alacrity and speed that I am leaving these things that have the capacity for temptation behind me, I am running towards the things that have value for me. I like the word follow after because it's a process, it's not just a spurt, right? It's not just, oh, I'm gonna go get that, but it's a sustained effort of following after godliness and the fruit of the Spirit. Someone has said this, the Christian life is not just about what we're running from, but what we are running towards. I, I want you to think about that. Sometimes, you know, when we are running from something, we're not sure really where we're headed. I heard it someone say one time, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So you kind of have to, when you're leaving behind something, there has to be a focus that is compelling and motivating you in the direction. God wants to fill the void that you're leaving behind with the things that have not served you well, with the fullness of what he intends. And let me just remind you of a verse that the Bible says, and it's kind of a core verse for my life and my ministry as a counselor, and it's really this, the thief has come to steal and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and to have it more abundantly. What it really says is I have come that you might have the fullest life that you can imagine that I've prepared for you. God's intent for us is not misery, God's content for us is not that we should go around with blank faces and sad countenances because of the the, the valiant fight that we're engaged in that is uh, draining us of our strength. But God's intent is, and this is hard for me, to realize that He intends that joy should be the moniker of our life and that we should be experiencing what it means to have a full life. Really, the tense of the word, the the meaning of the word there, having life to the full, life as God intends, is really that we are intending, we are fulfilling our intended function. The word perfect and complete carries that idea, fulfilling the function for which you were created. So if you talk about a perfect pencil in the Greek, you're talking about one that writes. It does what, what it was intended to do when it was made. For us to live a full, mature, and complete life is to live the life that God intended in our mother's wombs when we were being formed. That idea of fulfilling God's purpose for our lives is directly related to what it means as we live out godliness to experience the fullness of what He intends for us, follow after godliness and the fruit of the Spirit. And if you read in Galatians chapter five, verses 22 and 23, there's a verse that's almost symmetrical to the things that are listed here. But I want you to notice that when the Bible talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it is saying that it is not something that is self-manufactured, right? Say Amen. Because that, that kind of takes a little bit of weight off our shoulders, doesn't it? You heard the guy who said, uh, Lord, I want patience and I want it right now. It, you know, it's kind of like uh, how we, we want to do that with God. But there is in the fruit of the Spirit this idea of God's enablement, God's equipping, God's process. What more often happens if you say, God, I want patience, God moves you next to nasty neighbors, right? Right? I mean, God has a whole different process by which he accomplishes the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and it is always his work. I am not patient, but I am learning patience. I am not always gentle. By God's grace, I am learning gentleness, because the direction of my heart is, more than anything else, I want to be like Christ. And the whole purpose of our relationship with God is we are being changed and conformed to His image. One passage suggests we are being changed from glory to glory. There's just these glorious things that God is doing in our lives through the amazing work of the Holy Spirit. And so for that, we are called to follow after godliness and the fruit of the Spirit. And we're to fight the good fight of the faith. I kind of like that, don't you? I like just sort of the masculine thing about, you know, getting my armor on. That's Ephesians 6 that talks about, you know, putting on the whole armor of God that we may stand against the wiles of the enemy. Remember the rest of that? For we wrestle not against flesh and bad blood. And let's just say parenthetically, your husband is not your enemy. <laughs> your boss is not your enemy. Your children are not your enemies. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, against principalities and powers. We, we wrestle against the enemy's cohorts who are committed much like a roaring lion who goes around seeking whom he may devour. It's pretty good to know who the enemy is, wouldn't you agree? And don't look across the table and say, it's you. But remember, our enemy is the enemy himself himself. And the Bible suggests that we're to fight the good fight of the faith, not any faith. That little article in their Greek, means the faith, the faith that you have learned, Timothy, the faith, of the body of truth that you are hearing here every Sunday. And I listen to most of Pastor Jeff's messages, um, and you're hearing the truth here, amen? You're hearing good, concrete Stuff that will help you learn to live godly lives. So, fight the good fight. How do we do that? Well, one of the things we're supposed to do is to take hold of eternal life. Take hold of eternal life. It's Paul who says, I want you to look at this verse. Not that I have already reached the good or am already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because, you notice the last part of it? I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, I just want you to look at that verse and see if you can see anything strange like that. Here's the truth. God is already holding on to you. God has grabbed a hold of you from the moment you got saved. God took you. He sealed you with the Holy Spirit, marked you as His possession as you belong to me. And nothing can separate you from me. Nothing can pull you out of my hand. So he must be holding on to us, right? Why do we have so much trouble holding on to him? I can remember once I was uh, nine years old and I was on my sister's shoulders. Bad thing. Uh, I was already bigger than her. She was 12, but I was big. And she was going to drown too. And finally, she threw me off, and I'm in the water because I couldn't swim, and thrashing around, and scared to death, and a big burly, uh, I guess burly, uh, lifeguard jumped into the pool and grabbed a hold of me, and the whole time he was holding on to me, I was just kicking and screaming and thrashing, and he kept saying to me, I've got you, I've got you, and finally that moment passed, and I realized that I didn't need to kick and thrash anymore, but he was holding on to me. Now, how much of our life is about kicking and thrashing? Huh? Not realizing who really has us in, our, in his grip, who's holding on to us. Even Paul in his journey in this text, he said, "I'm forgetting those things which are behind me, and I'm pressing on towards those things which are ahead for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus." Realizing that part of that is just grabbing a hold of the one who already is holding me in his hands. If you don't hear me say anything this morning beside that, I want you to hear this. God is holding on to you. Can you say, God is holding on to me? Will you do that just for me? Say that with me. God is holding on to me. Is that good news? I'm trying to get a hold of him. I'm thrashing sometimes wildly. God's got a hold of me. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is saying to Timothy, take hold of eternal life. It's already yours. You've been called to this. When you made that confession before us, you made a confession to the whole body of truth of the gospel. Take hold of eternal life and keep the commandment untainted and free from reproach. Now, it should be reproach, not, not approach. Keep the commandment. What commandment? Commentators have an interesting time talking about this, but the suggestion it is, it's the commandment that Jesus said when he said in the book of John, a new commandment I give to you. Do you remember what that was? Love one another. Don't let go of that commandment. Don't compromise that Live that without taintedness, without carelessness, with deep abiding commitment, live that out so that your life will be above reproach. Why does that make a difference? Because when people see us living a godly life like that, the words that we say have credibility. When we're not living a life like that, when we're walking in our own selfish, indulgent sin and doing our own thing, we don't have any credibility. One of the problems in the 21st century godless age that we are living in is the church has not sounded a clear voice. The church is not sure how it feels about abortion. The church is not sure how it feels about same-sex marriage. The church is not sure about things that we believe are unequivocally clear in the true gospel of the word, amen? Amen. And so when the world looks to the church, they're not sure which way to look. And so it's incumbent upon us who are a part of the church, living out our faith in the church, pursuing godliness in the church, to understand godliness is illustrated by the connective links between what we profess and how we live. And that gigantic challenge is grace enabled that gives us strength to help us live out the life that God has called us to live to his glory. Paul's call, Timothy's calling uh, and his charge, clear back in chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, is to wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, standing up for truth. They refer to the confession that was made by Jesus, if you read this context carefully, before Pontius Pilate. Maybe you say, well, why is that there? If you go back and read John chapter 18, verses 30, 33 to 37, you'll understand that, that that's when they were trying to get Jesus to kind of hang himself. So, are you king? Yes, I'm a king, but not of a kingdom here. And Jesus knew by making that confession, he put himself up in opposition to the hierarchy of his day and ensured his death. But he made an honest, uncompromised confession of who he is and who his ministry was in that moment before Pontius Pilate. What good confessions have we made as we've been charged as God's children that we are living up to by his grace. I will live to your glory. I will do everything that I can as you enable me, Lord, to share the gospel. I will take the gifts with which you have blessed me and use them in your service. I will not live unto myself or my own selfish desires, but unto your glory. That's what it really means to fight the good fight. That's what it really means to be faithful, to take hold of eternal life and to keep the commandments untainted and free from reproach and from our own compromise in following after him. These are hugely important words for me in my pursuit of Christ. And finally, be faithful to the ministry of the word, or be faithful to the ministry of your calling. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say to me about how I am to treat those who treat me unkindly? What does the Bible say that I am to say, how I am to treat those who have hurt me and caused me pain? What does the Bible say to me as a husband, how I am to lead my family as a spiritual leader. What does the Bible say to me as a wife? How do I recognize the godly role that God has given to my husband and honor him in a way that affirms the biblical order that is described in God's word? How do I do that? Living out God's word, being faithful to the ministry of his word, not only as we disperse it ourselves, but as we disperse it to others charge others to seek the, tour, the true, the source of true riches in God. If there's any time we ought to be talking about that, we should be talking about the uncertainty of every other substitute for the joy and the privilege of knowing God. There's nothing else to, to count on in a day and age of changing values, nothing else to count on in a day when people are watching Bitcoin numbers every day to determine their their future. It's really difficult to trust in the uncertainty of the riches of this world as opposed to the certainty of God, who God is, who loves us, who gives life. And did you notice this in this passage? And who wants us to enjoy life. Did you know that God wants you to enjoy life? Have you ever lived thinking if this is fun, God mustn't want it? Or if this tastes good, God doesn't intend it. I mean, There's a whole sort of backward thinking we can do instead of thinking about God wants us to enjoy the life that he's provided and he wants it to be a full, abundant life. Now those words all have different definitions in the context of God than how the world would define them. But because we are people who want to live lives that are characterized by godliness, we care about what his word says. And then it says to challenge others as we're being faithful to be rich in good deeds, generous uh, lives that are sharing the richness and the fullness of what God has given to us. Pastor Jeff made an allusion to Haiti this morning, and I'm grateful that you are praying for Haiti. And do I have just a few minutes, Jeff, I can speak? So I had the privilege of working in Haiti for the last 10 or 11 years, and this is really not to talk about me, but during the time I was there, we established a relationship with a fellow by the name of Gilbert. Now I called him Gilbert for a long time until he straightened me out, but it's Gilbert. And uh, Jeff actually traveled with me on one of my trips there. We established a training institute there, and Jeff was one of our very best teachers who ever traveled with me there for what we stayed for a week Jeff something like that our lives were kind of in imminent danger for a short period of time but we survived it and came home Um, but Gilbert is a fellow who is very charismatic and he could be he could live in the states and make all kinds of money and be well to do he just has that that but he lives in Haiti and he lives there because he believes, as a Haitian, this is where God has called him to stay, even though for a period of time, he ran from God's call back to the States until God made him so miserable, he came back home. <laughs> and Gilbert lives his life for others. He is a hub for the 12 or 1,300 students that we have who many of them pass through his house He's always feeding people, he's always, we're, we're privileged through my uh, organization to send money and some of you know the great travesty that just happened in Lakai, which is a large city itself where uh, I think several thousands of people have died. We had about 200 of our pastors who trained in our institute who live right in the middle of that and even perhaps today as I'm speaking, Gilbert is driving a big old truck he has filled with building supplies to help those people begin to rebuild their shacks and their churches that are covered with just tin and cardboard siding, some of them, because he is a man who has learned that generosity and giving of your life is the thing that brings the most fulfillment. I've never seen Jill Bear sad. I've never had him say, oh, Dale, this is really terrible. I can't believe that God demands that I stay here. There's always the continual joy of the Lord in his face because he's learned about what true godliness means. Paul writes another letter. It's about five years later. And when he writes that letter, he writes at the end of it, I think we have it up here, do we? I have fought the good fight. Let's read it together. You wanna do it with me? Let's do it. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me. Now stop. Is that just for Paul and Timothy? Is that for another generation? Well, let's read the last part. And only to me, but also to all. Are you excited about seeing him? Are you loving his appearing? These are God's promises as we pursue God-enabled, grace-enabled gospel living. In February 27th, my 97-year-old mother went to be with the Lord, and uh, I was with her, and it was interesting to see how true this verse was for her life, to see her just simply having relinquished life, surrender herself, and to step over the threshold into that eternity that God promises to us. Paul says that what God has provided through us in godliness is not good just for this life, but thanks God for for that, but even for the life to come. May God help us to live grace-enabled, gospel-living lifestyles to his glory. God bless you, thank you for letting me share this morning.